This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Hobby Game Online Gambling. Occult Book Basics. Period Maps. And Rob Ford Depowered. Slabtown Games is proud to announce the Kickstarter campaign for their new tablet-based tabletop role-playing game, Storyscape. Storyscape introduces an exciting new breed of role-playing game system, featuring an innovative system of game mechanics designed by none other than fledgling newcomer Robin D. Laws. Storyscape takes the scout work out of gaming by putting the charts, math, and number crunching under the hood, letting you spend more time gaming and less time interacting with the rules. It's designed to be universal and easy to expand, and will allow you to play in almost any genre you care to name. Starting with the fantasy build, which of course is the most in-demand build for any role-playing project, Game Masters will be able to fine-tune settings and difficulty levels, so whether you prefer heroic high fantasy or gritty dangerous noir, Storyscape can make it happen. Storyscape is chock-full of easy-to-use, lightning-fast features and tools for Game Master and players alike, from virtual miniature creation to the fog of war, to automated journals, all of it, inside your tablet. The built-in Storyscape Marketplace will give you access to the best adventure settings and campaigns created by Slabtown Games and by other users worldwide, and will also let you put your own creations up for sale. The Storyscape Kickstarter is your best chance to get your hands on exclusive content and beta access for your gaming group. Head on over to www.slabtowngames.com and check it out. The rattle of dice, the flipping of brightly colored cards, and the furtive look of someone who has been caught doing something they mightn't tell us we've entered the gaming hut, but is it the gaming hut of the distant past, or perhaps the gaming hut of the electronic future? Robin, what do you see uh, before you um, uh, in terms of gaming and gaming? Well, I thought that we would take a look at uh, a new trend in the... uh, If you are... uh, industry professional in the hobby gaming industry, and you uh, sometimes go through uh, customs, for example, and say, I'm going to a gaming convention, the assumption may be that you are in the casino gambling industry and are headed to uh, something with, like, money involved in it, uh, and then you have to disabuse them of that notion and explain what uh, hit points are. Uh, But uh, we may be, at least for the purposes of this 15-minute segment, uh, converging a little bit because... Various uh, U.S. states are now permitting internet-based gambling through casinos to customers who are able to geolocate and prove that they are in whatever state that the jurisdiction covers. So New Jersey, for example, has legalized uh, six different casinos to engage in internet gambling. And so I thought we'd play a little thought experiment in which we ask ourselves, what would this look like if they came to hobby game designers in order to create new games. Now, A, I don't think this is going to happen, and B, it probably oughtn't. Um, if someone... Uh, well, there you go. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Well, this is... Uh, just make sure that this is uh, much like often Ken's time machine. This is an exercise in blue skying. Um, if someone came to me and said, would you like a lot of money in order to design this? I would actually kind of have a problem with that because in a lot of ways... 
the gambling industry in general is voluntary taxation aimed at people with uh, compulsive uh, neurological tendencies. And, and bad math skills. Uh, uh, yes, and that's something that... Uh, we, right, because the way to win it at uh, gambling is to stop when you win. Right. <laughs> and uh, n nobody does that. Uh, but let's just say that uh, uh, Ken, someone uh, came to you from uh, one of these New Jersey casinos and said, uh, you know, we've got our online poker and our backrat and our slot machines, which, you know, speaking of compulsive uh, triggering of uh, your brain chemistry, that's really the uh, the heavy hitter is the slot, as uh, the sort of video poker. Uh, but if you were asked to design something that had some of the values of hobby gaming in it in an attempt to uh, separate geeks from money that they would otherwise spend on $200 resin statues of Captain America, how would you go about that? Well, I think, first of all, um, I think James Ernest has actually designed uh, casino gaming games to be played. Either, I don't know if it's like scripts for video poker or if it's... Uh, versions of uh of slot machines but i know that he's done some work in the casino gaming space so the overlap is not as theoretical as you uh imply that it is i think the second question that you have with our sorts of games is that our sorts of games tend and i want to emphasize here tend tend to do a little more rewarding of skill than simple dumb luck or um uh or the, the sort of the, the Mr. Suitcase phenomenon that wins uh, ill badly policed magic tournaments and apparently Baccarat, that uh, the more money you bring, the better your chance of winning the game, which I guess in a way makes it the perfect casino uh, <laughs> casino game. Yeah, so I actually researched uh, Baccarat to write an Iron Man comic at one point, and of course Baccarat is James Bond's game, and so you think watching Bond that there is skill involved in Baccarat, but the skill involved in Baccarat is... Having a lot of money, mm -hmm. uh, being willing to lose that lot of money long enough to stay at the table until your luck turns and you win and then leaving. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, uh, the opposite of skill. I guess you have to be able to gut it out emotionally. but it, And again, it uh, requires you to have the emotional propensity that is exactly the opposite of people who are attracted to playing Baccarat. Yeah, which is, I guess, why uh, Bond does well at it, because he's a stone-cold psychopath. And and he's funded by uh, the British government. Or, or actually, Casino Royale was funded by the American government, but uh, that's neither here nor there. There you go, deeper pockets. Anyway, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the thing that uh, you have to look at is sort of the differential between those sorts of games and things like poker that are actually games of skill that the house merely collects their sort of their rake off of the off of the pot in exchange for letting you play poker there in their sumptuously appointed casino as opposed to out on the streets where you might be hit by a bus. And so I think part of our sort of game space might fit uh, more smoothly into that poker space. And once we've figured out something like, uh, you know, something with, with sort of a, a, a simple, brightly colored... Uh, combat uh, quality to it, something like uh, what was the miniatures game that the Jonathan Tweet did that had the fighty monsters that were from Dreams? Uh, Dreamscape. Dreamscape, yeah, something like Dreamscape. I think is is sort of the sweet spot for that, or maybe pulling it back to uh, very very simple uh, versions of 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 some other sort of uh, skirmish miniatures game, like you know very early D and D might be another possibility that you would show up. You would buy a build, you would basically buy a closed-built army, and then you would fight it out and, and win money depending on how many points. So, so you'd take the uh, 
the, the sort of the granularity of miniatures games where you have so many points to build an army and such and such miniatures are worth such and such points. You turn those points into dollars and you would basically say, I'm betting my $500 army against your $700 army. And if I win, then obviously I'm going to get more money than if I, you know, was playing a bunch of $100 army um, uh, walkovers. And again, you'd want to, you know, tweak the odds. You'd want to sort of really spice up gameplay so that the average guy in New Jersey could play it as opposed to simply uh, nerds with Captain America uh, fixations. And you'd want to make it, uh, you know, uh, Hero Clicks is probably another good model. I think you, you spend points to build those armies and they're very recognizable. And they would have the sort of thing that if you go into a casino, you look at uh, a lot of the slot machines are branded. So you can play the Indiana Jones slot machine, which of course is no different from any other slot machine, except you get to look at Indiana Jones while you're pulling the, the one arm. Uh, you could have a similar sort of thing with something like Heroclix or the or the, or, um, uh, uh, the various uh, clicky games that have basically got a relatively simple architecture and then really strong licensing. And I think that's what your 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 Donald Trumps and your other uh, casino magnates, your Steve Wins, would want to do is enter into licensing deals so that you're not just fighting you know two imaginary monsters from Jonathan Tweet's imagination. No, you're fighting Batman versus. Um, uh, Freddy Krueger or something, and so that people can feel like that's a thing. Again, you might want to combine it with uh, this, uh, a lot of the uh, tabletop, uh, or rather the tablet, making the hard decisions, so you have the um, video poker quality of, of, a, of an electronic interface with it, and then the deep cruft of the game is adjudicated by the machine in much the same way that the machine decides whether or not you're going to win a, a jackpot when you're playing slots, or any other sort of uh, electronically mediated uh, game outcome, video poker, another classic example. Now, one of the things that I immediately flashed to when we talked about this was the great uh, bit in uh, the uh, in 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 the uh, Mammoth movie Red Belt, where by introducing complexity, you've increased more places for corruption to take hold. And I think that again, like the software on video poker, you'd probably want to make sure that whoever the um, uh, the, the the gaming commission was that was in in charge of making sure everything was on the up and up was also gamery enough to recognize a crocked build when they saw one. Right, because the way that casinos make money on poker is that they just take a, a rake, they mm -hmm. skim off the top, and they basically charge people in order to engage in safe legalized gambling. And so, if you imagine that sort of competitive place where the house doesn't care who wins because they're basically you know, PayPal on steroids in this analogy, uh, that then uh, just leaves it up to the fact of, of people being competitive with one another. So you could then imagine a massively multiplayer computer game experience where people are uh, competing for a percentage of a pot that they have all contributed to. So, for example, you could have a situation where there's a treasure in a dungeon and all of the you could either uh, separately or in guilds and teams all be set loose at the same time to pillage that dungeon and instead of you know just getting measly gold and healing potions the all of the treasure that you loot from the dungeon is then your percentage of the of the money that you get back and it would be structured so that you know most of the players would end up just paying their fee in order to play but that the top level players would then uh, get more out of it than they uh, put into it. And that might create a sort of a, a, 
a situation, as you suggest, where uh, there would have to be a lot of test running of that game and you would need to do a lot of computer simulation in order to make sure that it felt um, fair to the competitors. You could also have a sort of a survival style race where if your characters are killed, all of the money in the pot goes back into uh, the general pot and you get nothing. So that's the equivalent of being knocked out of the game in poker. And you could either, again, just be uh, playing against the environment in parallel so that it's the monsters in the dungeon or the aliens in uh, the crashed spaceship who kill you. Or you could go, again, to the PvP-style uh, play and it would be, you know, essentially like a PvP server now for a multiplayer online game, again, except that there is uh, cash in it. And so that uh, creates the specter or allure, as it were, of, uh, you know, the 10th victim, the online gambling game, where you are all, you know, assassins in a modern day uh, virtual environment, uh, killing each other for money. Uh, and that could, uh, you know, accelerate the downfall of civilization uh, considerably. Yeah, I think I think that um, if, we, if we're looking to try and uh, create something that is both uh, compelling to watch and uh, costs everyone money, I think that uh, some sort of online or, or massively multiplayer battle royale style tournament that uh, you, you combine sort of the reality TV aspect that you're even getting now in things like the World Series of Poker, where people are also watching these sort of weirdly dysfunctional poker savants as much as they're watching the actual poker action. You combine that with um, uh, virtual killing, and it's just a short step from there to rollerball, I think. I was also thinking that another good model for this kind of thing is something like, uh, and I'm going to date myself, but Gauntlet, the old uh, tabletop arcade game, where it begins just as a sort of, you know, everyone loot the dungeon, and then at some point, you know, you've entered the PvP phase. Shots now hurt other players, right? And so that could be sort of the you know, I'm just going to play until shots hurt other players, then I'm going to cash out with my dungeon winnings, providing the illusion of success that you need, I think, to draw people in in the first place. Because it might be slightly tougher to convince people that they know how to play whatever this game is as compared to convincing them they know how to play poker, which is apparently remarkably easy to convince people is true. Um, and you could also certainly uh, sully the field of uh, German-style board games uh, if we're looking at this competitive model where the house... Uh, in this case, the gambling server lets you play uh, Catan or Carcassonne or whatever competitively, or uh, even a cooperative game. You know, you could have uh, sweet, beautiful government taking your money away from you under the guise of entertainment by having a competitive game, or sorry, a cooperative game on sort of the, the pandemic uh, mode where you get a... Uh, percentage of the winnings if you uh, complete the cooperative game together and then everybody loses and the house takes everything if the uh, plague or whatever the, the skin is winds up defeating you. Yeah, and the uh, money goes to the CDC, no doubt. Um, I, I think that you know, we can, we can sort of, once we've made that, that crossover to the notion of monetizing tabletop competition, it's sort of, you know, every example we give is going to seem relatively like the same sort of example, although I like your idea of taking everyone's money if uh, Cthulhu eats the world in Arkham Horror. Uh, that has a, 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 a lovely Lovecraftian immiseration to it as well as the rest of the problem. Um, but I, I think what's kind of more interesting is to figure out how you would, you know, adventure hobby game skin, you know, straight casino games, games of chance. Uh, is it just a matter of 
rolling 20-siders in craps and playing blackjack with tarot cards? Or is there some way that we can take our our flavor of nerd and put it into things like uh, roulette or pagao or kino or whatever? Is there some uh, sort of methodology by which... I, I, I almost kind of think that there has to be some way to use nerd OCD to power a kino type game where you're looking at numbers that are coming up on a little chart and you have and you can sort of convince yourself that there's a system by which the numbers will come up on the chart and it's like oh captain america's due thor's come up twice that kind of thing is, is there something that you see as a possibility in that pure uh game of chance type space that could be made uh particularly um uh, dangerous to people of our social uh, ilk? Well, I think what you're looking at is exceptions-based games of chance. Right. So that in addition to uh, the the Baccarat cards coming, that there are uh, the cards are not just straight up uh, numbers that you match in a simple uh, number matching system, but that a particular card can come out of the shoe that changes the rules of play. Um, and that could be as simple as, you know, uh, if this card comes out, everybody's got a uh, put more in the ante or they go bust and lose everything. Or if this card comes up, then the, you know, the, the house odds change to, you know, even more elaborate sort of PVP things where, you know, everybody change seats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love the notion of um, uh, gambling with flux. Pass your uh, cards down to the next guy. And so that's an example of taking a hobby game design principle in a way that wouldn't necessarily appeal to our people. There's nothing, uh, you know, that's not, you then have to make it the Boba Fett exceptions based uh, <laughs> backcrack game, I suppose for, for that. Um, and I think in a lot of ways that, uh, Oh, sir, this is black widow, Jack. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, it would also be very interesting to see if nerd cultural, part of the psychological game would come into play and things, you know, in an exceptions-based poker tournament, would that uh, draw more people in whose geek side social skills would uh, come into play or, or not come into play in terms of bluffing other people? Um, and so you could also have uh, a game where you have hidden cards and the hidden cards, you can either play them for their number value and their, uh, uh, you know, to count toward blackjack, or you could instead play them for their exceptions-based value to, uh, you know, steal a little bit of money from somebody else's pot uh, as sort of a sudden side bet that uh, disrupts play. So you could uh, add a whole, uh, you know, extra disruptive level to it. And I suppose you could, if you wanted to brand that in a way that uh, appealed more to frat guys than to nerds, you would call it Extreme Baccarat. Extreme or, Baccarat. Yes. Uh, sponsored by Axe Body Spray. No <laughs> Axe Body Spray and um, uh, Slammin' uh, Monster Energy Drink. Wow. This is this is why people should not give us money and ask us to destroy civilization, because apparently we're, we, we just might. we're fairly good at it. <laughs> Well, before we destroy civilization, perhaps we should uh, move on to a, a, a more uh, positively service-oriented segment. And that segment is a special combo segment today. The precincts of the Consulting Occultist are co-sponsored by Ask Ken and Robin. And in this case, Stephen W. King asks, uh, and he asks Ken, of course, to assemble a 
basic occult bookshelf. Of course, the Height Memorial Library is, uh, I'm sure, many, many shelves of occult books. But if you are just starting out in your efforts uh, toward uh, Kendom, uh, what are the first uh, books that you pick up and why? Well, I think a lot of it obviously is going to depend on why you're doing it and what part of the occult you're interested in. And that, you know, seems like a, a no-brainer, but obviously if you're pursuing it because you're a, uh, a believing uh, Wiccan or neo-pagan and you want to find out more about your faith, that's going to be a different batch of books than if you want to write a bunch of uh, role-playing games with secret magic and astrology in them, which is sort of more the path that I take. And then there are sort of sub-branches of the occult that will take you down various uh, primrose paths all by themselves. You can, you know, have a great deal of fun collecting nothing but tarot books and wind up with a fairly, you know, impressive library of that while never really getting into the the rest of uh, the occult mainstream. So, to just to, you know, put some parameters on it, I would answer this question as if you are trying, as you say, to become a second Ken, and what you want is to sort of be a, a gawking tourist at the bus crash that is uh, occult thinking uh, throughout uh, Western history. And I think the place that I w- would start, and I, I still would start there, and it's very old and it's probably grotesquely outmoded, but there's a book by Richard Cavendish, who was a sort of popularizer uh, a popular his- history writer, popular topic writer uh, back in, I guess, the 60s and 70s. And he wrote a book called The Black Arts, which was, uh, which came out in the 70s when, or maybe the early, the late 60s, when the witchcraft was sort of coming out and there was all the, uh, you know, people were, were naked on the news because they were, you know, sell- worshiping uh, Pan in their backyard or whatever it was. And he came out with a book that was basically sort of an overview of not just magical thinking, but the history of magical thinking in the West. And it covers pretty much all of the topics that you'd want it to cover. It covers astrology, it covers uh, Kabbalah, it covers uh, basics of alchemy, tarot, and then it also, of course, is chock full of gossip about famous magicians. So, just looking in the Black Arts, you can learn about the the mystical War of the Roses in 1890s Paris that I uh, snuck into uh, Dreamhounds. Um, You can learn about uh, Aleister Crowley and how he wrecked the Golden Dawn. You can learn all manner of of great and exciting sort of um, little stories that help. And Dreamhounds is Dreamhounds of Paris, upcoming from Pelgrane Press by Robin Laws, uh, with uh, material by Kenneth Height and Steve Dempsey. Right. Um, Thank you, Robin, for that informative and in no way... Entirely self-interested explanation. Um, And and so I I found that that was really good. That was one of the first few books that I bought when I was trying to figure this stuff out to run Call of Cthulhu with. And while he has written another book called The History of Magic, uh, which came out in, I think, 91, a lot of that was pretty much just a rehash of what he had done in the Black Arts. And I think the Black Arts had a more colorful... Uh, feel to it, and it was it was more fun and evocative. So I would actually start with a copy of that. That has been that gets reprinted every now and again, and it's really easy to find used um, for a more sort of grown up take on that same thing. There is the great uh, historian Nicholas Goodrich Clark, who is who was uh, before his tragic and untimely uh, demise the world's global expert on the Nazi occult, but he also wrote a more uh, straightforward. Um, I think it was it was called the History of esoteric practice or the history of Western esotericism, something like that. But Goodrick Clark's book is sort of the grown-up, going to college, uh, want a bibliography. Scholarly is perhaps the word you're groping for there. Scholarly, a more scholarly version of of the black arts, but it's not going to have the same, I I guess you'd call it, for lack of a better term, sex appeal that that Cavendish's book is and did, and I think that that's 
uh, something that's important to you know keep in mind as you sort of move up into this field. Another um, another uh, popularizer is Gary Lockman, who used to I believe play for Blondie, and he has written a number of um, sort of histories of the occult that deal with the occult's uh, involvement in you know I guess uh, culture for for lack of a better terms. Um, he's got a book called The Dark Muse: A History of the Occult, which is Another pretty good overview, and again, is very heavy on personality, while also containing some some quality uh, theory and philosophy behind it. Um, he, let's see, uh, he also has written, I think, a biography of maybe it's Rudolf Steiner Uspensky. So he's he's uh, he's fairly familiar with mysticism as well. Uh, so he's um, probably a good guy to start with if you're more wanting to go to towards. Um, things like Uspensky or Gurdjieff or sort of the modern mystical tradi- tradition, Swedenborg, uh, people like that, um, rather than straight up uh, astrology and tarot and 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 uh, you know casting murins on people's cattle, uh, which which is obviously the sort of more fun thing than a lot of stuff that's no no the giant red bull is inside of you the whole time type mysticism that I generally uh, pass by unless it is also talking to angels UFOs. Um. In terms of sort of reference books, I think that there is still probably not a better one than Bill Whitcomb's Magician's Companion. Uh, obviously, there are magicians who object to its uh, relatively straightforward presentation. They object to its relatively uh, eclectic um, uh, menu of, of offerings, and they pick nits with some of the Kabbalah, which is what Kabbalah exists to do, is get people to pick nits with it. But this is basically a... Um, list of magical correspondences and magical uh, meanings ascribed to various sets of magical emblems. So he has the seven planets listed with all of their uh, basic uh, correspondences or their basic uh, magical um, symbolism to it. And then you can also look at the seven heavens of Sufism, which are in that same section under seven. And then it goes all the way up to like the 93 Enochian ethers and so that gives you a good sense that, in a, from a gaming perspective, you can say, okay, if there are five Greek elements and five Chinese elements, can I map them to each other? Can I, is there anything else that has five in it that can be part of my uh, mystical architecture as I'm building this, um, uh, you know, magical cult or this uh, magical, um, or this magical metaphysics, for that matter? Another good uh, desk side compendium is Godwin's Kabbalistic Encyclopedia, which sort of Combine. I mean, it starts basically from Crowley's Kabbalistic Compendium, the Liber 777, and takes that plus a bunch of other sort of uh, standard dictionaries of Kabbalistic meaning of both the Hebrew words and various magical numbers uh, and the magical number value of Hebrew words and lays them all out. So if you keep running into the number 172, say, in your game creation or whatever, you can then... Um, apply the Kabbalistic meaning to it without actually having to be um, uh, a student of the Kabbalah. This is sort of like um, a German-English dictionary for people who don't want to learn German. This is a Kabbalist, Kabbalah to uh, numbers dictionary for people who don't actually want to learn immediately all the ins and outs of Kabbalah. Although, again, it's not super difficult. Uh, the, the, the beginning level of it is, and uh, Cavendish has something on it, and Whitcomb has something on it, and then, obviously, this uh, Kabbalistic encyclopedia has a nice little thing in the beginning of it. Speaking of Godwins, there's a guy named Jocelyn Godwin, who is another uh, great uh, historian of uh, the occult. 
and is well worth getting. I ran into him in with his uh, terrific book, Arctos, The Polar Myth in Science, Symbolism, and Nazi Survival. But that is not necessarily a generic book. You might want to look at something like The Golden Thread, which is uh, a history of the Western mystery tradition, or another really good book that he did um, is called The Pagan Dream of the Renaissance, which is about pagan elements within the Renaissance. So that's a good um, sort of uh, moment in history type primer. And he also has done a lot of other sort of uh, works of mystical enlightenment. Uh, he's translated a mystical uh, mystical text or two in his day. And he's, he's one of those sort of good writers who is also a believer in the topic, which I think turns out to be kind of helpful. So if you were to pick, uh, to sort of move away from the um, baseline to the representative, um, if you were to pick a book by a major occult figure to be the one that you... Uh, put on your burgeoning shelf that will later uh, become a whole bunch of those books. What's the first one that you're going to hand somebody? Oh, man, it, uh, it kind of depends on what you want. History has proved you can, in fact, go very wrong, starting with Aleister Crowley. But I really got a big kick out of Magic and Theory and Practice, which is his book that is not a primer that is disguised as a primer, uh, as a cruel joke for people. Um, but it's very engagingly written. Crowley is a, is a delightful writer when he's... Uh, uh, having fun, which is most of the time. And so you might want to start with that. If you want sort of more of a grown-up, hair-on-your-chest type occultism, you might want to start with uh, Agrippa. The uh, three books of magic have been translated by Donald Tyson for Llewellyn and have been extensively footnoted, so you can sort of follow along and figure out what it is Agrippa's going at. Agrippa sort of codifies the entire occult tradition up until 1530 when he writes the book, so you're sort of catching up there, and then everyone since Agrippa has kind of been building on Agrippa, including uh, the, the mainstream of the Golden Dawn. So I, I, would, I would start with either Agrippa or Crowley, depending on where you want to go. Another possibility is A.E. Waite, who wrote a book called The Book of Ceremonial Magics and Magic and Pacts, which is often translated into A.E. Waite's, or uh, published as A.E. Waite's Book of Black Magic, or A.E. Waite's Book of Ceremonial Magic. Um, he was not necessarily a practitioner, but he was a member of the Golden Dawn, and he wrote, of course, designed uh, the Rider Waite Tarot, and is uh, an occultist of the First Water, and also has a lovely uh, turn of acerbic humor when he's writing books about the Rosicrucians or whatever. So you might start with his um, uh, book of uh, ceremon ceremonial magic and pacts, uh, depending on what specific thing it's published as, but it's A.E. Waite, and pretty much anything by him. I think is, is pretty golden. And what would be the first uh, biography that you would recommend someone uh, purchase for their occult biography section? Mm. Again, um, I think that you're probably not going to go... I mean, if you want one book that is just going to sort of set the world on fire for you, it might even be The Reckoning by uh, Charles Nichol, which is a examination of the murder of Christopher Marlowe, and I know we've discussed it previously in this space, but because of Marlowe's occult interests and occult connections, that book will give you a lot of doors into the occult from literature, from espionage, from crime, that may be a straight biography of someone like Madame Blavatsky or, um, uh, or Aleister Crowley won't give you. There are a number of decent biographies of Crowley. I think any one of the ones that have been published in the last... 15 or 20 years are, are probably pretty good to go for. If you are looking more at the occult as both social movement and thing that makes people look really ridiculous, you might check out the biography of Madame Blavatsky called Madame Blavatsky's Baboon, which is uh, great fun and does not take uh, theosophy 
particularly seriously, even though it is a straightforward historical biography of sort of the impact and effect of theosophy on 19th and 20th century culture. So those those are, uh, are, are that's a pretty good book as well. And my, my last question uh, calls to mind the possibility of a children's book called My First Grimoire, but what would you recommend uh, as a first grimoire to add to your occult library? Again, I think that uh, Waits' uh, book of uh, black magic is, is a good one. You might look at uh, a book by Owen Davies uh, called Grimoires, which is a history of grimoires, and then pick one that you like. Uh, the Lesser Key of Solomon has been fairly recently uh, done in a fairly authoritative translation from Llewellyn that you can pick up relatively uh, easily. Um, I think that you probably don't want to start with something like um, uh, the, the Peter Abanus or uh, or the book of um, uh, uh, Bramel and the Mage that was the one that started sort of the uh, the Golden Dawn because a lot of that is both boring and difficult and I, th I think that if you're going to the trouble of finding a grimoire, you should be able to jump right into the, you know, the warnings about demons and uh, how to turn invisible type stuff that the Lesser Key of Solomon will give you. Uh, well, I think we've assembled a, a pretty fat bookshelf for the uh, budding consulting occultist, and uh, I can hear our uh, resident volunteer archivist uh, groaning in terror at all of those uh, titles to transcribe. So I think it's uh, time to... Uh, beat a hasty retreat into our next hut. Oh, wait, sorry, we've got a late-breaking consulting occultist extra. Another uh, one that I, I didn't want to leave the hut without uh, recommending is The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. Manly P. Hall was an American Rosicrucian, and if you can get the really nice, uh, enormous uh, coffee table version of it, there is an onion skin uh, drawing uh, that you can lay over the portrait of Shakespeare to see what Shakespeare would have looked like if he'd worn Francis Bacon's hat. It uh, covers, from the perspective of a devout Rosicrucian, uh, the whole scope of Western and, to some extent, Indian and Chinese, although he wasn't particularly an expert in that, uh, mystical thinking. It's beautifully put together. It's if you want one coffee table book on the occult or one to sort of page through and look at all the pretty pictures, uh, definitely get a big, pretty illustrated version of The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. Okay, now we will make our heretofore announced segue to the next hut. And that next hut, as you can tell from the longitude and latitude markings and the drawing of the exotic sea monster in the corner, is the cartography hut, where I thought this week we would throw around the idea that the things that we love about maps, particularly as players of fantasy role-playing games, and the way maps were in the period on which most fantasy games are loosely based, are quite different. So that we really love the sort of beautiful detailed map that you can get, for example, by working with our uh, 
regular sponsor uh, Pro Fantasy Software's campaign cartographer program where you can put in you know, every last tree and you can map out the shadows on the houses and you can create lighting effects and um, make it look really great and, and vivid as a, a visualization tool. But that, of course, at the time, if you look at world maps, you uh, from uh, period eras, uh, Roman maps, for example, aren't even really recognizable as maps unless you sort of school yourself on them because they're kind of uh, route maps are kind of like the uh, the AAA road service maps of their day. And a lot of other maps are just due to the uh, limitations of the pre-scientific era, uh, pretty distorted and, and weird looking and, and hard to read. So assuming that we want to set aside the beautiful aesthetic joy and visualization uh, techniques that come with a fully rendered modern map of an unmodern world, how do we use the idea that maps are very inaccurate in our gaming in a fun way that the players will enjoy, rather than feeling hosed by this whole pedantic notion of their maps not looking the way they want them to? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that you can... You can oversell the notion of historical fidelity in a world that has divination magic and flight spells, right? Um, the reason, obviously, that they didn't have uh, decent maps in medieval times, first of all, is that they didn't have really the excess uh, intellectual uh, candle power left over from doing everything else they needed to do to stay alive to figure out map projections and stuff like that. The Arabs... Uh, figured out map projections much earlier because they needed to figure out what direction Mecca was for everyone to pray to. So they had a number of really good uh, geography uh, geometries worked out. Um, but basically, if you're doing anything more than mapping where your bean field meets the other guy's cornfield or drawing the entire world as God would look at it uh, to uh, send Adam and Eve or the ten tribes of Israel somewhere, you're really sort of working at excess capacity as far as the Middle Ages are concerned. But in a in a fantasy world where you have the capacity to do aerial surveys, you have um, uh, obviously the, the greater wealth that is produced uh, given the number, the amount of gold that's just littering the ground in dungeons, things like that. You have a different sort of a society. And I think that insisting on keeping your medieval cartography accurate is kind of like insisting on keeping your medieval dentistry accurate and saying, okay, your character's 30, roll to see, you know, what percentage of his teeth are left. Right. In, in a high, high fantasy world, you've got better than Google Maps, right? Yeah, right? You can use your magic spell to summon up an accurate globe that you can zoom into that's accurate for the minute and allows you to see exactly where the orcs are. But if you've got a low fantasy world or are trying to play with this idea a bit more. How can we uh, take this premise and, and uh, make it fun? So, for example, there is the idea in a lot of fantasy settings that there are, you know, there's trackless frontier. There's areas that have not been explored and that they are as unfamiliar to the adventuring party as the depths of North America were to Lewis and Clark, for example. Yeah, and again, again, that is a matter not so much of you know, shutting down someone's fun, it's of finding different fun. So people who are going to be into the notion of exploring the interior of Galarian or whatever in the way that Lewis and Clark were exploring the interior of America, as long as you let them draw a map that is at least as accurate for their purposes as, say, Lewis and Clark could draw, because Lewis and Clark had, you know, um, uh, uh, they, they had sextants, they had cadastral uh, geometry, they, they knew how to draw maps, they were surveyors. Um, 
I don't think that you're running into any problem because the fun there is the act of translation. I think that where you run into your winky area is where the player characters want to see a map for some other reason, either for uh, strategic planning or to specifically say, well, how many days do we have to go and do, are there going to be glaciers in the way and, and sort of route planning type maps. And they want one of, and they want to see something that does that for the route planning type map. I think you can uh, do pretty well looking at, at Roman style maps. The, the, the tabula Putinger, as it is called, is a great thing to look at. And once you sort of grok how it works, I think any GM with the, worth their salt is already trying to figure out how to make their campaign world make sense in that cartographic uh, tradition. I think you can also look at um, medieval Chinese maps, which are not as good as people say they are, but they are certainly better than, say, medieval European maps. And you can say, well, we have a pretty good idea of what the province looks like. And those maps are probably about as reliable as, say, the maps in the back of an average fantasy novel. And so those sorts of things, I, th I think you can still have some of your fun in terms of, you know, the orcs are here and the giants are here and the dwarves are here and we're here in the middle at the gold leaf part. And then that's, I think that's a, a great deal of the fun there. Uh, characters, unless they're actually fighting a full-on war or planning a full-on, you know, agricultural uh, uh, empire, I'm not, I'm not sure that they necessarily need maps in the accurate sense that, say, the Ordnance Survey or the USGS provides maps of things. And uh, then you can get that sort of classic idea that came from the uh, early days of D&D &D where you sat down and, you know, created your... Uh, maps carefully on graph paper of the sort of dungeon scale maps and the fun of presenting players with a map that is uh, somewhat accurate but needs to be decoded somehow so that you find a map of the dungeon that you're in and the uh, there's obviously enough to go on so that you realize the area that you're exploring is somewhat mapped out but it's mapped out in an eccentric or loosey-goosey way of someone who obviously came from an era that predates graph paper. Mm -hmm. um, and so you uh, give them something to go on. Uh, and that goes back to the principle of uh, complete ignorance is usually less fun than a, some sort of flashlight to illuminate the edges of something that if it gives you enough to go on to imagine things up ahead, that that is more uh, compelling than, than not having a map at all. But that, uh, you could then try and create something in an older style or something with a set of symbols where it's not clear to the players what this particular symbol in the wall means, and then they have to go there, find it what it is, and then once they figure out that it's a secret door, for example, they then understand more about the map that they're looking at, and they can start to slowly translate it into terms that they understand. Um, you could do the same thing with... Uh, the players could discover a more recent map where there's a set of symbols that reveals what the inhabitants of each uh, area are and the sort of serpentine snake looking thing. Well, that's pretty clear. That's probably a snake monster. Do we want to hit the snake monster or do we want to, what about these squiggles over here? What do they mean? And so that allows a map that is not uh, completely informative, but is rather suggestive and impels people to, uh, enjoy the exploratory experience since that's obviously what's on the menu if people want to be interacting with a map a lot whether it's uh accurate or not yeah um and again this is a question not necessarily so much of 
of, of maps, but of of kind of uh, you know plans or or charts. The, uh, the 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 hard part about making a map is, like I said, you know, intellectual candle power that you have left over, and a few very basic pieces of technology such as a compass and a sextant. And once you have both of those things, you know, a fundamental grasp of math, a compass and a sextant, you can make maps that look pretty modern, you know, as early as, say, 1300. So if you look at, say, the Portolan charts um, that are done by navigators, as opposed to things like um, uh, the, the, the Gao map uh, or the map of Mundi that are mostly done by monastic travelers and are, again, more concerned either with th- making theological points or just telling you how many leagues it is to Hereford, you start getting really accurate really early. So it's it you you, you shouldn't necessarily worry yourself over whether or not the map, you know, matches the territory. Because again, unless you're playing a very strange game, it's not going to matter whether the map actually made the mountain range seem taller or shorter or put uh, the the town a hundred leagues one way or the other way. Very few people are making land navigation rolls to find a village. They're just saying, we go to the village and the GM says, okay, in the village, blah. So um, the, the, the question of taking the map and making it a fun way to explore the world, like you say, that can be done the same way that you would take any magical document, whether it's uh, a magical grimoire or the diary of a wizard or whatever it happens to be. And it might be, you know, a a fun way to do a map because, of course, a lot of our maps from the ancient world are extrapolated. They're not surviving maps. They're extrapolated from ancient geographies. So you can have the wizard, he's left a diary, and it's a bunch of coordinate readings that he got from his palantir or his flight spell. And he's like, you know, 100 leagues north and 200 leagues east, there's a gold mine. And 400 leagues northwest and 200 leagues north of that, there is a band of orcs. And and these, and then the players can sort of map those out onto a map, you know, creating the map in the same exact way that that wizard's uh, disciple might have if he'd found the, the, the diary instead of the much more deserving player characters. And this brings to mind the idea of the deliberately inaccurate map, the map that is... Uh, that you've captured from the other side and you know has been made to deceive you and because uh, otherwise a map that you're just handing the players and you expect them to think of it as accurate until they discover otherwise, that feels like sort of a cheat unless they have some, ideally I guess they have an ability that they check out the map, they look at it and then you tell them that their expertise in uh, mapping or lore or what have you is what tells them that they can't entirely trust the map, but it's the best thing that they have to go on in an otherwise uncharted or enemy zone. And so that, again, is a point of engagement that poses the question to them, what is true here, what is false, and why are the false things false? What is it attempting to do, and what can it tell you if you're prepared ahead of time, knowing that you're working with a false map? How can you leverage that to your advantage as you head deeper into that territory. Yeah, I, th- I think the, um, once again, once you start thinking of maps as, uh, as possible messages, possible codes, possible rituals, I think that's when you can start having more fun with it over and above the question of, is this map accurate? It's the question of, what is this map trying to do? And in, you know, like we were saying, uh, in, in the Arab world, maps existed to point you towards Mecca so that you could pray correctly. In the Christian world, the maps existed to depict creation as God saw it, and therefore you wanted to smooth out all the imperfections because God is not looking at crummy, stupid Europe with all its crummy, stupid bays and folds and embankments. God is looking at a neat geometrical design that he put down, and then we screwed it up somehow with tidal waves. And and so the um, 
the, the notion of what is the map's job in the setting is kind of a fun question to explore, and I think it's a more productive one than what is its job to the player characters, because in theory, you kind of know what its job is to the player characters already. It's either to tell them where the next uh, bunch of treasure is, or to maybe give them an off chance of finding the secret door in the dungeon, and everything else has got to be something that the players bring to the table themselves. Uh, well, speaking of uh, maps that are potentially misleading, I uh, have a map in front of me, and it tells me that uh, in the next hut, we're going to find a location near a, a downtown Toronto hotel called Crack Central. So uh, perhaps we should uh, put down these quite sensible maps and head once more into the mouth of municipal madness. As Robin has alluded, it is time once more to uh, listen to the creaking of the rigging as the white whale is sighted, spouting surely <laughs> its last, floating <laughs> off the, 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 the port bow, our harpoons to the ready, our um, uh, incredulity mounting. As with the rest of the world, we watch perhaps the most compelling and delightful tribute to Chris Farley that Canada has ever produced. Robin, tell us uh, the panting listenership What's going on with your crazy, globally famous mayor? Well, he's globally famous now, so everybody knows. Uh, the last time we recorded a sort of catch-up episode on uh, Rob Ford, who I had no idea was going to be a third unseen character on this podcast when we embarked on this. <laughs> he's, he's, he's actually, you know, he, we may have to give him a job with Time Incorporated just so that he can stick around after his inevitable destruction. I'm coming to the horrible conclusion that he may be drunk Godot. <laughs> drunk Godot. <laughs> there you go. So uh, we had sort of a lull period in the story, and I sort of, uh, the last segment that we uh, recorded uh, the day before that episode dropped, we had the huge revelations in the Ford story that sort of broke it open. And I think, uh, judging from my Twitter feed, many of you have been following the story in the uh, world uh, media. So rather than just uh, narrating the events for 15 minutes, I thought I would have uh, Ken hit me with uh, questions uh, that I can give you the local angle on. But basically what happened is that uh, there was a, a police investigation into Ford that we've uh, discussed earlier called Brazen 2, and we know a little bit more about the origins of that investigation. And now, is, the, is, that, is that the one that is led by Canada's greatest living hero, Gary uh, Godot? It's uh, Detective Sergeant uh, Gary Giroux. Giroux, right, okay. You messed, you messed me up with your Godot talk. Yes, obviously so. Um, and so uh, the word on that... Uh, for the longest time was that Detective Sergeant Gary Giroux was assigned to head the Brazen 2 investigation, not because he was a homicide detective, but uh, simply because he was a really skilled professional detective who really knew how to make sure that everything was done by the book because this was going to blow up into a big high-profile mess with a giant media component, and everything had to be done by the book. So, for example, they've right. been getting all their warrants all along, it turns out, not from the... Uh, justice of the peace who would normally issue warrants, but from a senior judge who's known as a solid by the book, moderate guy. Um, and, uh, however, also another reason that Detective Sergeant Gary Giroux, uh, has been brought on board is because this is a homicide investigation. That, uh, one of the things that they've, uh, been tracking is the fact that Ford's, uh, now 
criminally charged associate and former volunteer driver and uh, apparent drug dealer, and Ford engaged in multiple phone conversations, seven different calls on the day that Anthony Smith, who is one of the people who is in the famous still photo that is related to the still not yet revealed actual crack video, uh, was murdered and his cell phone was stolen. And one of the things that uh, the police are investigating is whether this is tied to the murder or not, because of course it doesn't necessarily have to follow that the video, which was actually discovered in fragments and recovered on the hard drive of a computer seized in the big anti-gang sweep uh, that led to these discoveries and led to this investigation. Uh, it was found on a hard drive, but if someone just happened to think that that was on Anthony Smith's phone, he could have equally well come to a bad end because of that. So if you flash for backward to an earlier segment, I was poo-pooing the idea that it could possibly be anything other than a coincidence, because of course, um, members of uh, drug gangs get shot all the time <laughs> for killed all the time, for, for, even for in Canada. Non-mayoral reasons. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I think even in Canada, that's still the majority. Uh, still the majority, but yes. um, and uh, there are uh, now a number of incidents of violence linked to this story, uh, and uh, from uh, another member of that gang being uh, thrown out of a window in Calgary to uh, Ford's uh, ex-brother-in-law being. Uh, roughed up in jail and the judge in his case saying on the bench that that happened because he was quote a bother to the Fords uh, to uh, Lisi himself who is uh, charged now with extortion uh, in the incident where uh, he uh, beat up uh, three occupants of that house including an elderly woman uh, in his efforts to retrieve the video or so the criminal charges indicate. Yes. Okay, so so I guess the question that, you know, immediately pops to mind, first of all, is uh, why on earth doesn't Toronto have an impeachment uh, procedure? What is wrong with you people? But the other question that pops to mind is, is there a sense now as more and more of this story is emerging? Because, of course, in America, uh, Rob Ford is, is has, has sort of been clasped to our collective bosom, because he's a great, fat, hilarious guy who runs into people and drinks his milk with two hands like a monkey. And so we just we just love seeing pictures of Rob Ford, but is Rob Ford just a goon who is sort of in the middle of this sort of cloud of criminality because criminality accretes to political power in, in, in urban environments? Or is Rob Ford actually some sort of um, uh, dim-witted whitey bulger who is actually building a criminal empire or thinks he's building a criminal empire or is giving, you know, instructions about, you know, getting rid of witnesses and such? Or is this sort of a you know, who will rid me of this meddlesome videotape type situation where people around him realize that these are bad things to happen to the Fords and we'll just go throw people out of windows until it's fixed. Is there some sense that, I guess mastermind is the exact wrong term, but is Rob Ford being seen as a mastermind of this criminal conspiracy or as the fat, happy guy in the middle of the criminal conspiracy? Uh, we do not yet know uh, whether... When people are led out of City Hall in handcuffs, and it uh, seems increasingly uh, likely, though by no means certain that that will happen, that uh, we don't yet know whether this was, A, all a coincidence, uh, a whole series of them, uh, B, uh, shady people in his circle commanding this on his behalf, his brother, also a counselor, also quite uh, even more openly thuggish in demeanor and 
a former uh, mid-tier suburban hash dealer, as was uh, revealed earlier. Um, whether uh, It's not clear who's calling the shots to protect the mayor, but it's certainly clear that somebody is doing things uh, to protect the mayor who, in his uh, new role as America's uh, media darling at the moment, has been doing a lot of American uh, press availability and high-profile interviews for uh, no particular discernible reason, but it's clear that uh, <laughs> Doug Ford... Because he was asked. Because he was asked, and because he knows he's a superstar now, yeah. um, and because he knows that he will get lobbed softball questions, mm -hmm. uh, either by, for example, Peter Mansbridge, who's you know our equivalent of Tom Brokaw, but didn't know the details of the case well enough to hit him with the uh, the questions or all the various uh, American uh, interviewers who don't know the details uh, well enough and just think of him as a clown, as a jolly fat man. And uh, he's anything but jolly. He's, you know, but he is hilarious. He's, well, he's <laughs> hilarious, but that doesn't mean he's he's funny or jolly. I mean, he's yeah, a, right, yeah. a tormented soul and palpably so. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, uh, he now has revealed that he... I appreciate your, your desperate attempts to add a Shakespearean dimension to... to uh, Rob Ford, um, uh, Canada's Falstaff. Uh, I think that that's great. Um, well, uh, th that is a little pet peeve that I'm getting as I'm seeing, you know, uh, people from afar uh, projecting onto this story that uh, because he is uh, a large man uh, and because he is a goof, that he is uh, somehow jolly, and that just that's just ain't ain't the case. It's uh, anything but. Um, if you want uh, a uh, obese uh, emotional role model for Rob Ford and you're an American, perhaps uh, if Rush Limbaugh ran a major city, that might be a better uh, an analogy. Um, and so Ford at any rate has now said that he wants to be prime minister one day. <laughs> well, doesn't, doesn't every Canadian child want to be prime minister no, someday? Isn't that the dream? Not particularly. And, and every <laughs> Canadian child currently has a bigger chance of being prime minister than <laughs> yes. Rob Ford does. Um, and uh, Doug Ford certainly wants to go into provincial politics. And until this uh, story and its set of revelations uh, had eyes on being a premier of Ontario one day. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be even more dangerous because he is, uh, he's the smart one. Um, although, you know, in a comparison of Tweedle Ford and Tweedle Forder, not in a more global sense of what the word smart means. Now, there was a there was a brief bit of news in America that after all of this blew up, uh, Ford's popularity ratings actually went up. That's now, you said that, that was that was a statistical outlier and there was one crummy poll. Um, and obviously they must have taken polls since that happened, because that was like two weeks ago or, or three weeks ago. What what are his what are his uh, and I'm not asking what are his numbers like, but I'm asking he had a a very obviously a large enough political base to get him made mayor. What are those people doing? Is this one of those deals like the people who just followed Nixon down to the to the wreckage and were like um, uh, Watergate was a frame up, or is this a situation where it's like ah oh, man we hit we really hitched our wagon to a winner there. We need to sort of cast around and find someone who also believes that the city of Toronto is full of um, uh, uh, liberal vampires, but is not actually a crack smoker. I mean, what, what's going on with Ford Country is, is I guess, my question. Okay, so uh, Ford Nation, as it is styled, um, is basically now split into two. You've got your either your diehards or your low-information voters who uh, only care about the fact that he uh, says, I've saved the taxpayers' money every second sentence. Uh, and mm -hmm. so there's a... a tiny rump that is still with him, but he's lost about half his support and they're casting about for uh, some other 
right-wing or tax-cutting figure uh, who can carry the, the mantle. Uh, but at this point, uh, a recent poll said that three-quarters of Toronto voters said they would never vote for Rob Ford under any circumstances, uh, which contradicts the idea that his popularity went up. And there's been a, mm -hmm. a recent spate of polling in which Ford loses to every conceivable other mayoral frontrunner. And in fact, the frontrunner is uh, a progressive at this point. It's uh, Olivia Chow, who is a longtime first municipal and then uh, federal representative of the uh, NDP and the uh, widow of the revered former federal NDP leader, uh, Jack Layton, and the stepmother-in-law of actually my own counselor here in my own neighborhood. And uh, she polls most strongly. So um, if, again, if people will recall that uh, one of the reasons that Ford did so well in the last election is that the progressive, the downtown progressives fumbled the ball and uh, let the next guy in line, who was an affable non-entity, uh, run. So if they uh, find a, a better, more dynamic uh, candidate, and Olivia Chow certainly has that level of uh, star power, it's entirely conceivable that uh, both the uh, sober conservatives and the members of Ford Nation will be disappointed in the fall when uh, the election is held. And uh, and, and obviously, if, if Ford says he's going to run again, he's going to splinter the vote yes, uh, he is. in Ford Nation because there's going to be that portion that's going to vote for him regardless, just because everyone that they hate also hates him. Right. Just and, like there's people who'd probably vote for Richard Nixon now if he ran. Right. And because his populist appeal as such doesn't transfer to any of the uh, more responsible uh, conservative figures, most of whom who have run and lost before. Yeah. So, so again, even if there was, uh, you know, if, if, even if, uh, was it Chow was her name? Uh, Olivia Chow. Yeah. Olivia Chow. Even if she wasn't, you know, the, the, the second coming of uh, awesome that, that she is. Even if she was just a, an affable uh, hack from the left, she would still have a better chance because Rob Ford is going to splinter his own vote, right, in, in the fall. Unless he's actually in prison, I assume. I assume you guys don't let people run for re-election from jail. Um, we'll have to find out about it. It turns out there's a lot of considerations that should have been written in, into the code. So um, you're asking why there isn't an impeachment procedure. And uh, another story that may have escaped the notice of the city is that he has already been impeached. Um, he is still called the mayor, uh, but mm -hmm. he's been uh, stripped of his uh, mayoral staff. Any degree of uh, power over the municipal legislative process. So he's essentially now, in all but name, a councillor without portfolio. Um, and the deputy mayor is now calling the shots. And uh, it was already a, a system where the mayor is weak. He does not have the sort of... Uh, executive power that he would in New York. In, uh, New York. And he had uh, his main power lay in uh, his access to a budget and his ability to appoint the heads of the various uh, committees. And that yeah. has been stripped from him as well. So he has lost all of his effective power and is now, although he is called the mayor, is now appearing at council meetings and obviously very clearly running as an outsider now that he has been pushed outside by the rest of council, who in a famously theatrical motion during the big dramatic meeting in which you may have seen footage of him bowling over a councillor, yes. uh, the councillors all, you know, turned their... Uh, swivel their chairs away from him to turn their uh, backs it, to him. And that was that was the one where he drank milk with two hands, right? Or was that a different council meeting? I, I, th that didn't even make the, the radar of the 12 crazy things that happened that day as far as I, it, I it know. It was just, it was, it, I think it, it was very, it was a gifable moment, right? Like right. when he tries to throw the football and falls over. You know, one of those things where he's, he's picking up the milk and drinking it like a, like a two-year-old. I think that 
you know, the again, the, the, the Chris Farley tribute aspect of all of this, I, I think, really worked. Yes, but the more famous gift moment from that was him uh, miming... Uh, being a drunk driver to another counselor. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. That's another. Uh, it, there's just so much to, to pick from. This right. is a and, real And of course, he has since uh, acknowledged uh, driving drunk on more than one occasion. And one of the details coming up from the police investigation is that the police who were surveilling him were under instructions to box him in if it ever appeared that he was uh, driving drunk. Because if you're surveilling the mayor of your city, who you know is uh, driving while hammered, your nightmare as a police officer is, is that, that he he's going somebody. to hit right. an eight-year-old and uh, on your watch, mm -hmm. um, and so they were uh, ready to intervene at that point. Now he's been, like you say, he's been stripped of all of his uh, uh, powers as mayor, and that was just done by a straight council vote. And then it, one assumes that if he is found to be a material accessory to any of these uh, killings, that he'll go away for that. But if you know uh, the stars all align and he somehow got reelected with, you know, for whatever bizarre reason, does the clock reset and he goes back to having his mayoral power? Or is it a, a thing that attach? What I'm asking is, does it attach to Rob Ford, the person, the stripping, or is it just like for the rest of his term, he has this deal going in? It's more of a sort of a mechanical question. Uh, right? These are all powers that were originally granted by council. Right. right. So in 2006, the mayor was given uh, these powers. And of course, what, a legislative body is empowered to give, they are empowered to take away. So and, and so when so when um Ms. Chow runs, will she be elected to this ceremonial post? Or do the powers reset? Uh, no, she will she will then whoever wins uh will then uh it's explicitly set up to sunset. Um, okay. but if Ford wins, uh that incoming council could theoretically, as their first order of business, restrip him of all of his powers. Right. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, that's, uh, I mean, I, I guess that to, to me, this has always been a question of, you know, of, of politics, not necessarily. I mean, the personality is hilarious and it's, and it's why we all enjoy it down here. But the, the, the crime ring aspect of it has always, I, I guess I've been underselling that in my own concern compared to the political fallout and how, you know, first of all, how this guy built that constituency, because it would seem like there should be, you know, one guy who is capable of being a populist who is also not on crack. It's just so far outside the uh, political discourse until he decided to basically uh, run as a cartoon, essentially talk radio character that no one had done it before. Um, and so he was able to grab that sort of uh, populist mind space because nobody on either side of the spectrum had attempted to do it. Um, and so... His, Did that become possible because uh, Ontario added these suburbs to the Toronto electoral district? Yes, that's, that's very much a component of it, is that the previous uh, Thatcherite uh, provincial government welded the outer suburbs to the downtown area in amalgamation in something that was designed to create this effect without a crazy person taking advantage of it. Right. Um, and so the thought was that one of their allies... Uh, would then win rather than this loose cannon uh, figure who, until, you know, his problem started, uh, both uh, provincial and federal conservatives were uh, quite happy to associate themselves with. They thought yeah, because that this, he was winning elections. He was winning he was elections. He was opening up a new sort of populist uh, style in a country where conservatives, although they uh, often win, have uh, sort of difficulty finding 
uh, purchase as something other than the default guys who get in either because the left is allowing the vote to split or because they're uh, people want a, a break from uh, the uh, centrist parties. Um, mm-hmm. And so he seemed very promising to them until his uh, incredibly damaged <laughs> uh, personal life began to uh, dramatically unravel like this. I mean, given that he's not characteristic of, well, I, I would say of any Canadian politician, but certainly of, as you say, the Conservative Party in uh, the Toronto area, to what extent is the damage to Ford damage to the conservative brand? I mean, does do all future conservatives have to be extra boring to make sure that uh, no taint of Rob Fordism sticks to them? Or could a conservative who also is popular in the suburbs run as a man-of-the-people type candidate without having had that brand hurt? Or do we even know that until we see the next, not even the next election, the next two or three elections? Um, I think that the current provincial... Uh, aspirant to the premiership has been damaged by this just because the press can ask him questions as to whether he supports Ford and he has to uh, very visibly weasel and twist in the wind because there's no right answer. Right. Yeah. Because otherwise the guys in the suburbs who still like him will be all mad because he's not standing by their man. Right. So uh, he certainly diminished the, uh, that guy. His name is uh, Tim Hudak. On the federal level, the conservatives uh, have their own uh, scandal brewing, uh, which in any other universe would be the juicy scandal that I would be paying attention <laughs> to, uh, which uh, and so it's they're sort of uh, busy imploding on their own and uh, do not uh, need Rob Ford to come and uh, sit on their picnic basket. Right. <laughs> a, there, there is a Rob Ford Yogi Bear reference there somewhere that I can't quite get to. Uh, is he's, there, is he's there more crack addled than the average bear. Than the average bear. Than the average bear. Now, is, is, there, uh, is there more um, delightful uh, data that we have not yet uh, dug out? Or have we perhaps brought the whale to heel and are merely four or five chapters in an epilogue away from the conclusion of your quest. What's your sense on this? There's more shoes to drop and they're not going to be pretty. Um, We're going to learn more about his family life, which uh, involves repeated domestic calls. Um, It's uh, becoming more and more apparent that his uh, uh, relationship uh, with his wife, who he said that uh, famously crude thing about an attempt mm-hmm. to defend himself yes. from this, a sexual this is, harassment this is, charge. This is how busy we've been. We haven't even been able to get to that. No, so yeah, but, uh, there you go. Although we're a, we're a more genteel podcast, I think. Than, than uh, we would have discourse. to slap an explicit uh, yeah. note, which is not her want, onto it to uh, to get into that. But uh, uh, look it up on YouTube, folks. Uh, yes. The phrase right. uh, "get enough to eat at home" is perhaps uh, will get you where you want to go. Um, or not. Um, <laughs> we're we're going to discover that that relationship is uh, physically abusive in one or both directions. Um, and uh, we are going to get uh, wiretap uh, information. So the thing that triggered oh, all of this the was... wiretap. That's going to be like a freaking gold mine. Yeah. So there's there are actual conversations that have, have yet to be released because all yeah. of these revelations are from a 500-page heavily redacted court document that's going to be used in the case against Sandro Lisi, or uh, presumably as being used as leverage to get him to roll on uh, the mayor and the the next guy up. Um, And uh, so there's a lot more of that document still to come. There's still the court case. So, um, and that will be, uh, you know, unfolding as we get closer and closer to the election day in October, which, uh, you know, makes a, uh, Ford resurgence seem uh, more and more unlikely. Yeah, because uh, they can they can just kneecap him at any moment by selectively leaking something. I mean, and not even 
something that you know artificially makes him look bad, something that genuinely makes him look bad. I mean, even in the best possible environment, right. you and, can't survive. And the cops that kind are not out to. There have been no leaks in the case. That every all this stuff came out after it was ordered released, after a, uh, the media applied to get it released, and the cops have been very, very scrupulous about not seeming to be out to get him because the way yeah. they're out to get him is not to destroy his political career. They obviously uh, want to put him in jail. Right. Which would, in theory, destroy his political career. Although, in theory, um, <laughs> this whole thing was over two segments ago. So, <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, in theory, anything uh, could still happen on the Rob Ford front. But that's your uh, the inside skinny that uh, or the inside not so skinny that uh, so many of the listeners have been clamoring for ever since yeah, this broke so, wide. So, so, so lay in, lay in your stash of Grey Goose vodka because the Rob Ford hut is not apparently coming down anytime soon. Right. It was actually iceberg vodka and I, uh, that turned out to be his vodka of choice, uh, and they disowned him. <laughs> the The iceberg uh, vodka company released a statement. There's a There's a picture of of him at his desk with with Grey Goose in it. Well, so I'm sure in, he's in a, a multiple vodka man. Yes. Um, uh, which is delightful. Anyway, um, yeah. So, like I say, uh, there are there are more rooms to the Rob Ford hut that we haven't even gone into, and so uh, stick around for more on uh, Moby Ford as we continue. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Slabtown Games, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep the show going by pouring your gambling winnings into the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Andrew Clowery, Christopher Petty, John Kingdom, and Terrence Boone. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>